Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences, so there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Support for this show comes from Vanta. Dealing with loads of spreadsheets, juggling different tools, and having to do manual security checks, it can be a headache to keep up with today's compliance and security programs. Vanta is the trust management platform that wants to simplify things and bring all your trust-building efforts under one roof, making growth smoother for your whole organization. Vanta lets you automate up to 90% of compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Strengthen security posture and reduce third-party risk. Get $1,000 off Vanta when you go to vanta.com slash vox. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash vox for $1,000 off Vanta. The United States has shut down travel from Europe. Italy is requesting supplies from the rest of Europe and not getting any. There's a price war on for oil, started, as all of these things were, by the coronavirus outbreak. We're going to talk about the geopolitics of this disease, the thing that everybody is talking about right now, on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham. I'm here, as always, with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. But here is a different term in the world of coronavirus, (laughs) because we're all quarantined at our houses. And uh, the audio quality may be a little bit different because we've tried to jury-rig home studios. Uh, Apologies if anything sounds weird. To be honest, it's probably just me sounding the way I always do. (laughs) Hi, everybody. Hi, I'm sitting in a weird closet in my house. I'm just in my living room. I I can see we're on a Skype call, too, while we're doing this. So I can see Alex has a, uh, like, an abstract painting behind him of some kind. My wife made it. I don't know what it's supposed to represent. I actually love it. Oh, Christine made it. Oh, that's really, I, I think it's good. I just oh, don't I, understand it. But like, I don't understand modern I, art I don't in understand general. art, period, but it looks good. It's pleasing. So I'm, I'm a fan. Uh, so the night before we started recording, we had this whole plan for an episode. And then the president of the United States, Donald Trump, completely threw it off by announcing a ban on European travel entirely. Like, like you cannot come to the United States from Europe. Alex, you as our resident European passport holder, has this ever happened before? I don't recall. I mean, we have in the past been not too welcoming of certain people coming from Europe. But in this case, this seems like at least it was announced as a total ban coming from Europe. It is not that, though. Uh, Trump went way further than what the actual policy his administration actually came up with. So what this really is, is basically, first of all, if you are an American, you're listening to this wherever you are. If you're an American citizen, if you're a green card holder, if you uh, have a whatever kind of visa, you can come home. You can come back to the United States. There is a provision where if you've been in one of these most infected countries in Europe, Italy, Spain, etc., you may have to be into a quarantine or be extra screened. Uh, we still don't know exactly what that looks like, but you can still come home. It's not like you are stuck where you are. If you're in the United States, it's likely that you cannot go to Europe. 
and these this ban does not apply to all European countries. What it really applies to is those that are called the, in the Schengen zone, which is those European nations in the European Union that allow free movement, right? So like if you got into Germany, you could go to Italy in theory without having to necessarily have your passport checked. Countries that aren't in that zone, let's say the UK, for example, that is not banned. And in fact, Trump made a very clear statement in his speech saying, oh, but the UK is exempted. It's not just the UK. Ireland is too. And so all this to say is that he announced a way more draconian measure than it actually is. That doesn't make it reasonable or non-draconian, right? Like what you're, you said, there's like this crazy baseline that banned all cargo importation from Europe that he seemed to announce, which was obviously like an incomprehensibly absurd policy that then like the White House immediately had to walk back, despite that it seemed like it was kind of in the president's prepared remarks. Like there's some they don't they clearly don't know what they're doing, first of all. Uh, and second, the idea that there can be no travel from Europe, it doesn't make sense from a public health perspective. And, and I, I want to sort of belabor this point before we get into the politics part. In the United States, we are already in a phase of the disease that's referred to as community transmission in the public health sphere. And that means it's going from person to person inside the United States, not uh, coming from foreign sources and then infecting people here and trying to contain that spread. It's just in the population in the United States now. And the question is what we do about the fact that Americans have it and are giving it to each other. So it seems to me that, and it seems to most of the public health experts that I've seen talking about this Europe proposal, is that Trump is trying to treat this as a foreign disease. And he explicitly labeled it as such during the speech last night when it's not a foreign disease anymore, right? It is... It's an illness in the United States, and the issue is how do we prevent it from spreading from American to American, and travel from Europe seems largely immaterial since very few people are traveling anyway right now because everyone's terrified of the coronavirus. It's worth more—I mean, yes and no. I think yes in the in the grand sense. Like, his number one priority in the speech should have been to announce all the measures he's going to take to stop the spread of the virus inside the United States. That was not the, that was not the message. That was not the tone. Um, we did not hear a lot about, you know, is there going to be testing? How are you going to—how are people going to pay for it, how are, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He did not announce a lot of those measures. He announced it as basically, oh, it's going to be Fortress America and we're going to keep it out. Um, there is some value in making sure that people who might be coming from Europe who do, do have the virus um, do not come to the United States. It, it, there is a massive outbreak on the continent, but it is nowhere near enough. There already is an outbreak in the U.S., as you rightly mentioned, Zach. So the fact that the president is sort of saying, oh, as long as we put up our walls, we're going to be fine. Um, no, that's that's just not true. Yeah. And so, you know, on top of that, even, you know, and I agree, Alex, you know, uh, Jen Kirby has a really great piece on Vox.com, which we'll link to in the show notes, uh, kind of really laying this all out. Um, in some sense, you know, stopping some people coming from Europe who could have the disease from spreading it to new communities in the U.S. that might not otherwise have it spread to them, right? Because not everywhere in the U.S. has it. There are, this community spreading is happening. Um, but what's weird is like you said, the UK is not in it and other places aren't in it. And the UK has 450 cases of coronavirus as of Wednesday night. And so it seemed to be somewhat arbitrary on the lines that, that Trump drew. There are some countries that are in the, the ban that have fewer cases. It doesn't really seem to make sense. And there's a lot of confusion about why the UK was left out. You know, there's some speculation that it had to do with you know, support for Brexit um, or, you know, the U.S. wanting to make nice with the U.K. to get really good, you know, favorable trade deal post-Brexit. But even just like we saw with the travel ban 
the Muslim travel ban, as we called it before, it seemed like it was just kind of fairly arbitrary with just like a bunch of countries thrown in to pad out, you know, the, the countries they wanted to target. It doesn't seem like a ton of strategic thinking went into picking the countries. And again, you know, like we said, it's already here. So it's kind of pointless. One point that I, I really want to focus on when we're talking about this are the, are the politics that surround it. Uh, because while we are not epidemiologists and we have only learned what experts and our colleagues here at Vox who cover public health more directly have told us, we, we do know a bit about foreign policy, you might say, and, and global affairs. And one thing that strikes me about this, this speech and, and the policy that was announced in it is that it was written, as far as we can tell, by some conjunction of Jared Kushner and Stephen Miller, that is to say the president's son-in-law and his anti-immigration policy aide. And it's not clear the extent to which expert input from you know people at the CDC or something went into formulating the policies that were announced last night. And crucially, it was done without consultation, full consultation anyway, with our European allies. There's a statement today where the Europeans were like, what? You're doing what? We had no idea. We strongly oppose this. This is a terrible idea. Whatever moderate gains can be accomplished through restricting travel to Europe, and I agree there might be like a smart quarantine procedure that one can put in place that falls short of a blanket ban on European nationals or, or people in certain countries traveling, seems to me to be swamped by the hit to relations and the damage to be done to like international cooperation on this issue by just being like, screw you guys, you're not coming here. Just to be clear, you said travel to Europe. Is that part of it? It's No, sorry, travel from Europe. That was okay, my mistake. That's okay. So, you know, we've already seen throughout the Trump administration's first several years, a breakdown in relations between the U.S. and its traditional European allies through, you know, fights over NATO and spending and defense funds, uh, trade fights, you know, Trump picked a trade war essentially with several countries in Europe and threatened, you know, other tariffs and things like that, trying to get better, you know, more favorable trade terms. Um, so we've seen this kind of breakdown already. And I think what's really critical, and again, like Zach said, we're not epidemiologists, but I, I think it's pretty safe to say that something like a pandemic requires international cooperation at a level that you really want your allies and, you know, everyone to be kind of on the same page. And I think to me, that was one of the most disturbing things, right? Like Trump rolled this speech out. It was essentially the middle of the night in most of Europe. Most people were asleep there and didn't even know this was happening. So we couldn't even like get a European reaction right away. We had to wait till like everyone woke up and was like, surprise, you're not allowed in America anymore. And I, I think just even that alone is really disturbing that we didn't say like, hey, we're going to work this out behind the scenes, make sure everyone's OK so that this doesn't cause massive confusion and international rifts. And that's really troubling going forward because we need we need to be able to help our European allies if it's with medical supplies or, you know, other sort of resources or vice versa. If we need help from them, you know, we need everyone to be on the same page. And Trump is in classic Trump form, flying by the seat of his pants, doing whatever he wants. And everyone is just left to scramble, including his own team. Yeah, there's sort of like a, a small, medium and, and, and large critique here. I kind of, the small one is like you this should have been so much clearer from the beginning. I mean, I'm already seeing reports of Americans spending up to twenty thousand dollars to get home from Europe when, in fact, you know, they could have still come home at a regular time. They didn't have to necessarily spend a lot of money to quickly get here. That's just ruining the lives of, of a bunch of people who might not be able to afford them. Oh, wow. I, I, I had not heard that. That's extraordinary. Right. I mean, granted, they, it's probably better to come home sooner rather than later, but you don't have to 
up front $20,000 in order to make it. It's just, it seemed like if you were in Europe, you were stuck there. I mean, that, that was the impression us who follow this stuff, uh, you know, we who follow this stuff right. had at the beginning. Sometimes when I first thought of this, I was like, well, if you're, if you're wealthy enough to be traveling in Europe, you know, you probably have some spare cash. But like people save up their whole lives to go on a trip to Europe or, you know, save up all year to take their family on a big, expensive trip and are being really frugal. It's not like it's all like the wealthy jet set, right? They're like regular Americans, working class and middle class people who worked very hard. There are students who are over there on scholarships. So This actually affects like regular people, not just rich people. I just wanted to get that in there. All right. So, Alex, continue with your Goldilocks uh, critique of the Trump administration. Oh, the the medium one is that this is about Trump personally. It is moments like this where you need someone who can deliver clear facts and clear guidance as to what's going to happen. This is a moment when you need an act, when you need someone in charge, especially in crises like these, there is nothing that replaces the executive. The president gets people in a room, says, I want this, this and that. This is happening at this time. You're not going fast enough. I prefer this. And I've talked to people who were involved in the Ebola response and other responses. And they were just like, this is a beyond a partisan issue. It is there's no substitute for the president telling certain agencies, I need you on this, I need this vaccine faster, or I need you to give more resources to here instead of there. Without that, this the sprawling bureaucracy just kind of goes on its own and there's no real coordination. And on top of that, the same president who's giving these orders needs to be able to clearly tell people what is going on and what happens next. Otherwise, the American public doesn't know what's happening. You see chaos all around the world and with other governments. So that's sort of critique number two, is that that's sort of personal to Trump, that this is this, this exact crisis is so anathema to how he operates, and he's just so ill-suited for it. And the, the final one, and this just dovetails of what... The Papa Bear argument. Right. And this, and this dovetails off of all of you, uh, is that, like, this is the limits of America first, right? It is in these moments where this notion that, well, when it's every country for themselves, every, you know, country needs to take care of their own selves. And there's tons of value in that. But there's also tons of value in at a moment that is at a crisis that is so global, so that where everyone needs to be able to help each other out, that the notion that we're just going to like, you know, put up the drawbridge and not provide assistance to our allies in Europe who we've helped forever, it is an insane prospect. And it actually makes us less safe down the line. It's like it's just chaos throughout all in one speech. It's not just the United States, though, that has this kind of strikingly selfish response, right? So as you may know, there is a massive, massive coronavirus problem in Italy. Uh, They're living through, if not the worst case, one of the really scary situations where you have um, a huge number of cases spiking at the exact same time, which is overwhelming the healthcare system and forcing doctors to make horrible decisions about who to treat first with scarce medical resources. It's really bad. But Italy put out a call for medical assistance from other EU states, and not a single one of them responded to the Italian plea for help. Yeah. Uh, so Italy, they didn't just put out like a call. I, it seems from my read that they kind of tried to trigger some mechanism that's part of the, the EU institutional process where they basically invoked some measure that said, OK, hi, we're officially formally asking for this thing that we have all agreed we will provide for each other if we ask for it. And it was basically, you know, included things like sending specific medical supplies and additional resources to help. And according to to Italy, uh, nobody in Europe has responded. They especially called out Germany, 
basically saying, you know, we would really like some help, Germany being, you know, a very important leading member in the EU. Um, And what's fascinating to me, there was this op-ed that an Italian official wrote in, I think, Politico, basically explaining this and laying this out and saying, look, we've, we've asked and nobody's responding, except in that piece, he said, China has responded. They're sending us supplies and help, which is really fascinating to me, right? The EU is supposed to be this body that was all working together and coordinating things. And you would think that, you know, if one of the members of the EU needs help and has invoked, hey, this collective agreement we're all part of, can you help? And there's just radio silence. And yet you have the Chinese who are already grappling with an incredibly serious outbreak there. They're the ones sending supplies. That's a bad look for the EU. Uh, and Italy's really pissed off about it. As well, they should be. I can't imagine why, why they why would they take, take kindly. I mean, it, we've seen the EU multiple times kind of back out of its all for one, one for all sort of notion. I mean, granted, it is, it is not NATO, right? But the, the sort of core of the entire project is that we are sort of one supra power. Every, you know, government is different and everyone's got their own national priorities. But on big things like this, they kind of find a way to coordinate. And the fact that they that it won't, the fact that every country's kind of still sort of scrambling to find out what it needs to do, kind of leaving Italy on its own. And on top of that, giving sort of China a, a, a goodwill moment here, that, that has larger implications than just uh, Italy being mad at Germany for a moment. This is sort of a notion... It, that strikes at the heart of the entire project. So the the exact request, according to the Italian ambassador to the EU, was that they would activate the European Union mechanism of civil protection for the supply of medical equipment for individual protection. But unfortunately, not a single EU country responded to the commission's call. That's the quote. And uh, what I find notable about that, as it relates to what you were just saying, Alex, um, is that this is... This is the argument in theory for global government or transnational government mechanisms like the European Union, right? Like when you set up mechanisms of governance that go beyond and and through state lines, the idea is to more effectively and decisively respond to challenges that cross state borders. You give the EU a degree of power and in exchange, you have a degree of control over such transnational issues like disease spread, which is just not something by its nature that respects borders. And yet uh, the European Union nation states are not acting like they are members of a transnational project, that they have some kind of shared goals in this particular outbreak when it comes to at least helping the Italians who need it. The most, and that may not be true for long. Part of the the calculus here might be that other European countries are bracing for their own crises, and there are cases getting worse in country after country uh, across the European Union. But the point is, if it, it poses a kind of challenge to the idea of Europe that has been conceptualized, which is if Europe is not helping its uh, its key member states in a crisis right now, what is the point of the European project? To uh, um, quote a movie I don't actually like very much, but uh, makes a, uh, this is controversial, but I think is a very, very useful maxim from No Country for Old Men. If following the rule brought you to this point, then what good was the rule? Right? Like, I, I wonder if that's the kind of moment that we're having for the European project. So Angela Merkel, the chancellor of Germany, just gave this speech, and she had been criticized for not actually coming out and giving a public address. And so her leadership was already being criticized within Germany, saying, you know, we need you to come out and show some leadership on on the coronavirus and and what's going on here. 
and you know they were just getting dead air and so she finally comes out and basically you know gives this speech that was very sobering it said you know up to something like 70% of of Germans might get infected with this. It was, you know, an interesting and pretty stark contrast with Trump's speech. But what I think is interesting in the German case is that, like I said earlier, you know, Germany is a very important member of the EU in terms of leadership, um, you know, in terms of kind of driving a lot of big decisions and trying to kind of rally support for things. And, And I think one of the things we're seeing is that, you know, Angela Merkel is on the way out, right? She's not quite a lame duck, but she is saying that she is leaving power, right? And it seems that maybe she's just kind of like washed her hands of the whole thing and was kind of stepping back. I, you know, I don't know if it was that. Maybe she was doing a lot behind the scenes and we just didn't see it. But I do think, you know, there's Germany's in a period of transition right now. And I think that may actually have a little bit to do with it. Well, also just to add, I mean, Germany has been called upon a lot. Basically, every single crisis in Europe, uh, the financial crisis especially, the the Germans had to play a big role during the uh, migration crisis after, this, you know, during Syria. Like, Germany brought in a lot and, and played a role in kind of getting a bunch of countries to allow them in. And, and it's just, it's sort of had to lead the whole time. And I can imagine that there's also sort of fatigue in terms of being like, oh, us again? Like, everyone, you know, a lonely continent turns its eyes to us, you know? Um, and I, I can imagine Imagine there just being a bit of, a, you know, Merkel couldn't just come out and, and lead if she wanted to right off the bat. She had to talk to people in the party, although she doesn't necessarily lead anymore. She had to kind of talk to others, make sure that there are politics here. And there are, of course, moral reasons and, and just capacity reasons why Germany should have done it uh, probably earlier. But I do believe that it has just been every time there's been a crisis really for the last decade or so, Germany's the one that's had to step in. And I can imagine, you know, in Berlin, just like, oh, I again like just give us a second man so i I, i'm actually not surprised it was a delay but i think she her speech was pretty spot on merkel apologist alex ward everybody all right so we're going to take a quick break and then when we come back we are going to talk about the effect of the coronavirus on global oil politics and markets which has been uh concerning support for this show comes from vanta Dealing with loads of spreadsheets, juggling different tools, and having to do manual security checks, it can be a headache to keep up with today's compliance and security programs. Vanta is the trust management platform that wants to simplify things and bring all your trust-building efforts under one roof, making growth smoother for your whole organization. Vanta lets you automate up to 90% of compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Strengthen security posture and reduce third-party risk. Get $1,000 off Vanta when you go to vanta.com slash vox. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash vox for $1,000 off Vanta. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Life moves pretty fast. Are you drinking water that can keep up? Smartwater Alkaline has everything you need to stay hydrated, no matter where your day takes you. Whether you're pitching a tent or your next big idea, Smartwater Alkaline can help you perform your best. It delivers a pure, crisp taste that makes it the perfect chaser after a big workout. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smart Water Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We're talking about the international politics of the coronavirus, a topic I think we will probably return to very frequently in the next few weeks. But right now, something that's happening, which has been really striking, uh, is a is a complete disruption of global oil markets, not in the direction one usually expects where the price goes up, but in the opposite direction, uh, where prices are really, really low. And this has created a major tension, what some are referring to as uh, a price war, 
between Saudi Arabia and Russia. Now, Alex, you wrote a piece about this for Vox.com. Talk us through how the coronavirus threw oil markets into chaos, like how it started. Well, first, the, the, the briefest oil economics 101. If there is a lot of oil in the market, the price goes down. If there is not that much oil in the market, the price goes up. That's just important to know off the bat. For, for everything that's about to be said next. So what you really need to know is that Russia and Saudi Arabia since, well, for, for years, but especially in around the mid-2010s, were the leading exporters of oil and producers of oil. And when the U.S. came onto the scene of the shale oil boom around that time, they started to lose market share, right? And so one of the places where they still found demand, where the, uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia still found demand, was in Asia, the problem, of course, is that coronavirus has hit really hard in that region, in China and South Korea specifically. And so demand from that region went down, which meant that Russia and Saudi Arabia had less demand to sell their oil. We should be clear on why demand went down, right? Because it might be a little bit murky. Obviously, when you're in the middle of a crisis that requires people to stay home and to stop traveling, the result is that all of the things that one uses oil and gas for, things like driving, flying a plane, operating a factory, that sort of thing. Those industries stop operating at full capacity, which means people stop buying as much oil, which means there's much more supply than there is demand, so price goes down. So to counteract America's growing share of the uh, the economy, and in fact its production, Russia and Saudi Arabia had made a kind of tentative deal in which they would coordinate their oil production, right? So if they kind of cut their production, the price would stay up. That would help their that would help bring in more profit and revenue, therefore, you know, increasing their economies, as opposed to producing more to get more to combat the United States in the market, which would have lowered the price and therefore they would have brought in less money. Uh, when that demand went down from Asia, Russia decided to break that deal, basically saying, no, if we cut production, the US is going to keep kind of grabbing whatever demand is left. So instead, Russia decided to break the deal, get into the fight, and start producing oil even more, which would bring the price down. The Saudis said, uh, no, you don't. We're going to actually flood the market ourselves with a bunch of oil, basically creating a glut, which brought the price way, way, way down. And this has massive effects because even though it might be better for the price at the pump, this actually ends up putting a lot of uh, smaller businesses, particularly in the United States and the shale industry, out of business. And that's why you saw the stock market freak out, right? because a lot of businesses were kind of going under and the price went down, which made fewer revenue. I know that can seem a little sort of like businessy, but that's important to know is that coronavirus, by making it so at least the oil industry doesn't have the sort of boom that it was having, um, it could really destroy the, that sort of economic market. Right. So big picture, just to kind of sum up, when times were good and, and things were rolling and China was buying a lot of oil, Saudi Arabia and Russia were doing fine in this pact, agreeing to, to work together to kind of counter the U.S. Then the coronavirus hits, demand drops. And Alex, in your piece, you have this great quote from an expert who basically said, it's every country for themselves. So it essentially, similar to what we were just talking about in the first half of the show with Europe, you're seeing this schism essentially happen where all of a sudden, world markets, world demand, the world economy, everything has just completely been upended by the coronavirus. And people are reacting and countries are reacting by essentially pulling up the drawbridge, like we saw with the US and the travel ban and saying, look, it's every man for himself. We got to take care of our own here. And that's what we're seeing too, even though it's it's different in terms of like 
travel and borders. That's the same kind of dynamic we're seeing here with Russia going, nah, sorry, y'all are on your own. We're going to make sure that we come out of this okay. So we're going to make sure that we get some revenue. We maintain this control, you know, and hold on part of the market. So it's the same dynamic we're seeing. And I think, you know, looking at this, you see the broader effects of what that means. It's not just that, oh, there's there's less coordination. This literally sparked this huge, massive disruption in the oil market. Stock market's tanking, oil futures tanking. It's it's really disruptive. And that only adds to the chaos in the economy and therefore, you know, creates a kind of snowball effect that hopefully will will be able to be slowed down if people can talk to each other and work something out. But it's really scary. So you just have this kind of this knock-on effect so that, you know, the more people start to, you know, go more nationalistic, the more you start to have these disruptions that are going to hurt everybody. That, that, that I think is the key point, right? It's like, this is a, a sort of tragedy of the commons is not quite right. More like a collective action yeah. problem. It would be better for everybody if they all coordinated and agreed to stop producing so much oil and the price would stay relatively stable. But since nobody trusts anybody to do just that under these circumstances, these coordination agreements fall apart in the way that Jen was just describing with, with potentially significant political consequences, right? So I, I don't want to get veer too much in the realm of speculation, but to give one example, uh, look at Iran, right? So Iran is a country that is in the midst of what's probably the world's worst coronavirus outbreak right now. Outside of China, probably. Yeah, outside of China. Yeah, but China's getting a handle on it, it looks like right now, right? And Iran is, has done an awful job. Well, debatably, China claims to be getting a handle on it. Iran is it's completely uncontained. It's infected like l- large chunks of its parliament, uh, which is remarkable to think about. It has an aging leader whose health is suspect. Uh, and so the, the virus is rampaging through a country that has already been racked with protests uh, and frustration with its current leadership. And then you have a country whose entire uh, political economic model depends on oil sales, right? Like oil is the backbone of the Iranian economy. And that's why U.S. oil sanctions have been so punishing uh, for Iran economically. Now, with cheap oil, it means that that industry will just get a lot less profitable, which means it'll be more difficult to maintain social payments. It means job losses. It means all sorts of different kinds of rippling economic effects, which could then further destabilize a country that's already in serious political and public health trouble. And who knows what the hell that means, right? I'm not predicting that the Islamic Republic is about to fall. I'm just saying that it's a very, very dangerous situation. And this oil price shock is, while it, again, may seem good if you're somebody who's driving a lot, the reality is most people aren't driving very much anymore relative to what they were doing before because they're not going to their offices. And so you end up having very few of the traditional benefits associated with cheap oil for the economy with significant threats to stability in other parts of the world. I'm thinking about Iraq, for example, you know, a country that is also heavily dependent on oil and and has a government that is roiling amid protests. And you can imagine, you know, it's already having legitimacy problems. And if it can only bring in less revenue because of cheap oil, then that country is going to struggle even more. One thing I wanted to add is, if you may have heard, if you'd been following the Russia-Saudi Arabia oil price war thing at all, is that Russia did this as a way to counteract America, as a way to punish the United States uh, shale oil boom. There was some sort of credence to that. I mean, the U.S. had just sanctioned a massive Russian oil company, Rosneft, you know, state-run company, uh, over its ties to Venezuela. And, of course, uh, U.S. mid-sized companies, just their stock prices plummeted. But that would be a really bad play if that's actually what the Russians were doing. Uh, The reason being 
that these mid-sized companies, a lot of them are going to go out of business, if not lie about that. Um, a lot of places like Texas, the Dakotas are in trouble. But what's going to happen, very likely, is that there will be just more consolidation of the shale oil boom industry in the United States, that the big guys, especially like Exxon, are just going to buy up the assets of these smaller companies. And so that will only make Exxon kind of stronger, really just have more share of the market. It will continue to kind of uh, produce. And so the, shale, the, the industry in the United States will be different. Uh, it won't be destroyed. And so this sort of U.S.-Russia-Saudi fight will continue. And that's really what's kind of happening here on a macro level is that you know, for years, the U.S. was buying oil from these countries. Now it's a competitor. And what we've really been seeing since like 2014 is that the Russians and the Saudis are just flailing as they figure out how to maintain a lead. How do they maintain power? This is all about a fight for market share. This is a massive oil influence fight. And coronavirus kind of accelerated the, the pugilism. One of the things that I think is just dramatically remarkable to me from this entire coronavirus outbreak, right, it started, what, late January, early early February? Is that right? Roughly January, yeah. Right. But it's only, it's only been a few weeks, right? At, at the most, a couple of months. And in just that short of time, we are seeing dramatic political shifts. I'm not saying that it's fully realigning, you know, world alliances, right? That's, that's overstating it. But we are seeing all these geopolitical effects so quickly. And it's really stark. And it really reminds you of how much of the current construction of the international system and, you know, alliance structures and just the way things work is, is mostly based on things going well, right? And when something goes wrong, you see these, these really seismic shakeups. You know, if you had told me you know, three months ago, that China would be the one stepping up to bail out Italy in the middle of a massive pandemic, and that the EU would have turned its back on Italy. Meanwhile, you know, Saudi Arabia and Russia are fighting over oil. Okay, I probably would have believed you on that one. That the US was banning travel from Europe. You know, it's these are things that I'd never would have expected to see. And we've seen it just in the span of just a few weeks, right? It's just stunning to me how much chaos and and change has happened. Now, the question is, right, going forward, like, how long does this last? That's obviously the huge question. And whether these political effects will become cemented into, you know, new relationships, new alliances, new ways of looking at partners you thought you could trust, whether it's just going to be a blip and everyone's going to just kind of get past it and go back to status quo ante, that's possible, right? But I just think it's it's important to watch how this coronavirus outbreak beyond a public health sense really is shaking up the international order in ways that could have effects that last years, if not decades, potentially, or, you know, it could just go back to normal. Uh, Jen, I think that's a perfect place to leave our listeners this week, uh, because this is a dynamic situation, obviously. Uh, and one thing that we hope to be doing on the show for the next few weeks is to keep track of these shifts that Jen was just talking about and keep you updated and understanding not only what the public health stakes are right now, but also how this is reshaping the the foundations of the political world that we all live in. Because it just, it is hard to overstate what a remarkable time that we're living through right now in global politics is. And I want to thank our engineer, Malachi Brodus, our producers, Bird Pinkerton, and Kyle Murdoch. And uh, I want to encourage all of you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts, of course. But also, if you can work from home, please, 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 please work from home if you can. Wash your hands as much as possible. Uh, use soap 
before you rinse off and get it under your fingernails by rubbing in. Thanks, worldly listeners. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>